0: Do you consider yourself a helpful person? If so, would you be willing to help support me and my team on Patreon so we can keep bringing you this awesome podcast? Every little penny will help. If you are willing to help, go to millionaire-interviews.com forward slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Or check the link in your episode notes below. One of the many perks of supporting us on Patreon is that you can instantly schedule a call with me to help you with your current or future business. If you check out the beginning of episode 119, you can get a glimpse of what you're in store for. So to sign up for this awesome opportunity, go to millionaire-interviews.com forward slash Patreon. And to our newest Patreon members, we'll be reserving the shout outs until the end of this episode. So thank you to our newest supporters. And now let's get on with the show.
1: It's a cool thing to have your own business. And I'm all about it. I've had three. I love it. An entrepreneur is who I am. But I just don't want to gloss over like the pain of starting something. It's kind of like a farmer who has a new field and he has to get the rocks out of that field and he has to break up the soil and he has to plow that field and pull all the weeds. And the first day he does that, he gets nothing. And the second day he does that, he gets nothing. It's maybe months later before the harvest is there. So if anyone's buying a business out there, you probably want to get... We all brought a thousand dollars to the table and said, okay, for four grand, we're gonna get this business started. In those first three years, we almost closed twice. We said, hey, if we don't turn a corner with this, we're gonna have to close down. And I found out that my business partner had... There is nothing that'll sink your ship faster than a partner who's not operating with integrity. And so one of the things I'll say is that you learn and you grow the most Not when you're succeeding, but when you're failing. My name is Michael Fry. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Astra Brands. And under Astra Brands, we have two companies, Brown Button Estate Sales and Circle Auction. And our companies serve high net worth individuals as they move or downsize. We handle MLB All-Stars, CEOs for major corporations, and when they're ready to move, we sell all their stuff.
0: Do you just deal with real estate or is it more than that? Because you're saying there's two different companies here that you're a part of?
1: Yeah. And actually, we don't deal with real estate at all. We deal with personal property. It's all the contents inside their house from the basic things that everyone has up to vehicles and sports memorabilia and everything
0: in between. Okay. Yeah. Because that's what I wanted to make sure because I know I saw estate, but I'm like, maybe some people do real estate as well. You're saying you just deal with their actual items that they're trying to sell. You're in Kansas City, correct?
1: Yeah, based out of Kansas City and born here, grew up here. Interesting thing about the estate sale industry is that the average estate sale is a garage sale in a house. It's someone just gets a little cash box and has a table by the front door. And the average estate sale nationally grosses a little over $11,000. Our company, with the clients that we work with, with the systems that we do, our average is just short of $40,000 per sale that we run. And we've done sales over 100, over 200000
0: I was bringing up the Kansas City because you said you deal with high net worth individuals. So are we talking like, I know you got Kansas City Chiefs, which NFL team, Kansas City Royals which is the MLB team. Is there any other sports team or are you working with these types of clients if they're maybe moving cities or you said maybe downsizing or moving somewhere else?
1: Right. From sports players to CEOs and just high net worth individuals, specifically one county in Kansas. It is the Southwest County of the Kansas City Metro's Johnson County. That often falls on the list of high-income counties nationwide, where our company was birthed out of and It's allowed us to really create a niche in the marketplace, in estate sales, offering a different kind of service than you see in most places.
0: So how old are you?
1: 36. And the current company is the third company that I've been a part of.
0: And can you tell us how many people work in the company and general idea of revenues or net income that y'all end up making?
1: Yeah. In the height of the summer this year, we're up to 28 people. And our company's placed on the Inc. 5000 list the last two years. This last year, 2018, we came in revenue just short of 3 million and really honed our system in Kansas City with what we're doing. And we're about to launch a new market in St. Louis. We have a five-year plan of an additional 20 markets, mostly focused on the Midwest and this season, where we're replicating the same things that we're doing in Kansas City.
0: Isn't Missouri and Kansas run through the city? So you're kind of actually in two states, the city there?
1: Yeah, it can be one of the challenges that Kansas and Kansas City, Missouri, there's a state line road that literally runs right down the middle of the city. And so we do work on both sides. Our offices are in Missouri. I live in Kansas and we do sales on both states.
0: Is there a reason for that as far as like the state running through? Because I went there a couple years ago and had no idea that the city was literally almost divided in half. It's not like you can tell or anything, but it's just interesting that I've never seen a major city like this where a state line literally runs right through the middle of it.
1: That's a great question. I should be further brushed up on my history here. <laughs> I actually don't remember exactly why something back in the 1800s and everything, but yeah, exactly why I can't remember.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, so I guess it's not that significant. So I was just going to bring up because we have a federal tax, right, for the nation, but I didn't know if there's different state taxes there too, where it might be like worth your business moving over a different state line, if that was a necessity.
1: You know, it it does cause us some additional challenges, actually. The city of Kansas City, Missouri has a local city tax. So we actually have to track all the work that's done inside Kansas City, Missouri proper versus the other cities. So there is some additional tax challenges involved with working across state lines. But for us to serve the Kansas City metro, that's part of what being in business here looks like. We navigate those challenges and it's worth dealing with, even though it's a hassle.
0: Right. Kansas City, Kansas is a little bit more business friendly if they're not doing little tax there that you have to do with the Missouri part, right?
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, there's actually a 1% tax, 1% tax on all income generated in the city. So even if you look at professional ball players, if a team from out of town, so for example, if the Colts came to town and played the Chiefs, they have to figure the portion of the Colts earnings from that gain and pay 1% tax on it, which I can't, I just imagine is a nightmare for them. So much simpler for me, but like I said, still a little bit of a tax challenge, but worth it to serve our Metro.
0: Right. If you didn't do it, I don't know if it'd be like half your income's gone. This is a little minute thing. It's just kind of interesting to maybe people remember Kansas City because of this now. This is at least the state line running through there. How old are you in your 30s?
1: Yeah, so 36. And this is the third business that I started. So I'm a third generation entrepreneur. My grandfather started a Napa store franchise in Southwest Texas in 1948. So that's a little bit of my heritage. I grew up working with my father. My dad had a business, it's called paintless dent repair. You use hand tools and you take hail damage out of vehicles. As a 12 year old kid, I work with my dad and to access the roof of a vehicle, You have to drop that inside layer. It's called a headliner. So at 12 years old, I'm taking sun visors out of cars and dropping the headliner. One of the things I realized working for my dad is that I got paid by the headliner. So the faster that I work, the more diligent that I work, the more money that I made. And I think one of the things that instilled in me from a young age, that entrepreneurial sense, it's not just punching the clock and putting in your time. Your work generates your income. My dad, as a kid, talked a lot. One of his famous sayings was R&I, which is resourcefulness and initiative. So the more resourceful you are and the more initiative that you take, the more money you get paid. And so I think coming from that heritage in my life, getting to stand on that foundation played a huge role in the success that I have today. So working for my dad, I went to school and I just went to a junior college. It's close by to our house. It's a big one. It has 30,000 students but it's still a junior college. I was planning on getting an associate's degree there and then jumping over to state school KU for a business degree. And got the associate's degree, was looking at moving to the state school. And my dad read the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. So probably a lot of listeners are familiar with that. It's a good book. It's just a mindset. Are you a person who's concerned about punching the clock and working the job? Or are you a person that's concerned about building wealth over time? Sort of separating from your hours. So out of that book, he went out and bought 14 rental units in about 60 days, which is a terrible idea. I would,
0: yeah. I would not... Do you have any background in real estate to go out there no. and do all that? Okay. <laughs> wow.
1: No background whatsoever. Read the book, got inspired, went out and bought 14 rental units. Most of them were a bad idea because he didn't have the background in the industry. So my dad's looking around for a property manager. Again, me just getting an associate's degree. I'm looking around for a job. And I was like, ah, I'll manage your property. It can't be that hard. So neither of us had any experience. I take all my dad's rentals. I basically make all my mistakes on his properties, which is great because he was pretty forgiving. Started to understand the game of real estate management and ended up getting a number of other properties and turned it into a business.
0: Okay. And can I stop you there? Because you said your grandpa was started the Napa franchise or was a franchisee in Texas, Yeah. but were you born and raised in Kansas City? Yes. Okay.
1: So my father had moved to Kansas City 20 years before I was born maybe. And yeah, so grew up in Kansas City. I lived 10 minutes from the house I grew up in.
0: And was it you were just living with your dad or your mom too?
1: No, a great family. I actually have four brothers and One of my brothers helped me start the company a business partner of mine, good close friend. So we have a close-knit family. And that's, again, most people are not a success in a vacuum. Malcolm Gladwell has a book that talks about so much of who you are is born of where you came from. And I think that's really true in my circumstance is that had a really great family and intentional parents who sewed into us and spoke to us about money and entrepreneurial things and then of course getting into business with my dad at a young age helped me get started.
0: So you were 20, basically, because you finished your associate's degree. You're working on your rentals with your dad. And then you want to jump in back there. I guess it sounds like you started finally maybe making these profitable. Because the whole concept for step or debt, it's just getting that reoccurring income, right? But again, maybe going out and buying 14 units, if you have no background (laughs) in real estate, he had the idea, the concept, correct? But you probably want to at least study it a little bit more before you go buy that many units. We're not just talking about like one condo, right? Or one house. If you're going to buy- 14 Uh, is, that's kind of ridiculous after 60 days.
1: Yeah, no, it's a terrible idea and no one should do it. If you're interested in getting into the real estate game, you need to go out and buy one unit and you need to work with that unit for a year and understand it and then you'll start to get your rental legs under you and move on. Not a good idea for my dad, but probably good for me. It gave me a very intensive school to really understand real estate and get into it. So one of my dad's friends actually became my business mentor. He met with me early on. He had counseled my dad on getting into real estate and this gentleman had dozens of properties and his property manager flaked out. Property management historically has not been a really good industry. People kind of jump in and jump out of it. Realtors do it on the side sometimes and that was the case for my mentor. And his realtor was not doing a good job anymore. So he essentially put all his real estate under my management and then told all his rich friends to do the same. So suddenly I found myself in business. From the time that I started, I grew it to 175 units under management. And this is houses and duplexes spread out across three counties in the Kansas City metro. I think I grew it to maybe seven employees by the time I sold it.
0: And what time frame was that? Great question. So
1: 04 to 08.
0: Yeah, actually I brought your LinkedIn. So that's what you're saying with your property management was those four years there. So, But real quick, before you talk about what you learned from this management company, so did you make it like an executive decision yourself to not go to college when you were finished your degree? I can either help my dad with these rental units or I can go to Kansas University, pay a bunch in tuition and decided that it's just better to work with your dad.
1: Yeah, really good question. I was planning on going back. That was the plan all along. I started doing this on the side. I think I took a few more classes at the local junior college, planning on going back. And the thing just steamrolled. It took off probably about that time. My mentor put all his properties under management. And suddenly I was very busy, had a successful business. I think I was probably engaged at the time. All of those things are a factor. Education is phenomenal. The American educational system is tremendous, and we're affecting technology around the world because of the educational system of the U.S., but I also firmly believe that you do not have to have a degree or even an advanced degree in order to succeed in business and otherwise. Again, having started three businesses, I have never sat down with a client and had them say, hey, Michael, before I hire you, I'd like to know where you went to school and what your degree is. Never come up. I'm a voracious reader and one of my childhood authors is Roe Dahl. One of the things that he's famous for saying is if you're ever going to get anywhere in life, you have to read a lot of books. And so I don't have a degree beyond an associates, but that doesn't stop me from being a lifelong learner. When I started the property management company, I knew nothing about property management. I literally went to Barnes and Noble and bought property management for dummies and read that book cover to cover among a number of others, some other rich dad books on real estate. And that's how I succeeded. Without a degree, without the background, I got a number of books, I learned from other people's mistakes, and I was willing just to jump in and make it happen.
0: Appreciate you uh, becoming a Patreon member. Yeah, no problem, man. So what inspired you to become one? There was some
1: content specifically, I can't remember the guy's name, but the guy over at Mighty um, I was just like, I had to listen to the end of it. So it was it was a good hook.
0: It is so funny that you said that because when I literally just got done editing, the guy said the exact same thing. Really? Yeah. I kept thinking that story was so good. I mean, I don't know if you thought the same thing, obviously. The guy is, you can just tell he's a grinder, you know, and you want to root for a guy like that. And if we're just looking at this from a financial perspective, the first two years of community college is usually cheaper than going to the state school right away. Yeah. And then tuition wise, let's just say, I don't know if it's been 10 to 20K a year or whatever it would have been. Let's just say, let's say 20, or we can even say 10 if you want. But let's say you go there for two years, get your business degree. That's 20K that you would have paid for that business degree. But for probably $100, you went to Barnes and Noble, got a couple of books that now you're learning about this niche and you read that in maybe a week or even less, maybe some a couple of these books, let's just say two weeks, and you learn more in that probably $100 worth of investment than maybe $20,000 investment.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So again, I'm not knocking education. I mean, if I'm going to go to the doctor, I want that guy to have a degree. I'm not interested in junior college doctor. But for so many things in the business world, a degree is not a prerequisite. You can go out, you can find a niche, you can find an area that's not being served well. You can start a business and it can succeed aside from education. But again, you have to be a lifelong learner. Degree or no degree, you still have to be a lifelong learner.
0: Why don't you tell us what you learned in the management company as you worked at for four years and then you sold it, it sounded like maybe before the bust in the real estate or maybe right at that time?
1: I sold it a week before the market crash. Oh my gosh.
0: <laughs> Look at August 2008. Yeah, I know you were close. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So a couple of things that I think are important takeaways from that property management company. You know, I already mentioned I didn't have a background in it and was able to make it a success. I just encourage people that you don't have to have it all figured out to get something started. So one of the things that I did have in my favor is a really incredible mentor who understood the real estate game in depth and had been playing for, I don't know, probably a decade. This gentleman was willing to meet with me. I'd take him out for breakfast probably every other month, once a quarter, and just sit down and I'd tell him what I'm dealing with and problems that I'm facing. He would speak into my business and speak into my life and incredible, incredible role in making that first business successful was finding someone who'd walked the path in front of me and was willing to share some of that success with me. I'd say that that's pretty critical. Everyone should find a mentor, someone that they can look up to and respect who's had some success in business and is willing to share some things with them. One of the fun stories about that time is that my younger brother, who's now my business partner, he actually worked for me in that season. He was 17 and had the attitude of a typical 17-year-old. And we actually did a staff-wide meeting one day, and we were rolling out some new policy. And he interrupted in the middle of the staff meeting, was like, hey, I just want to go on record as saying this is dumb. This is a stupid policy. This is my younger brother here. And my management supervisor who ran my management department, he took me aside soon after that and just said, hey, (laughs) I know he's your brother, but he has to go. He's affecting the business and he doesn't have the greatest attitude. So I did, I fired my brother. And that's a funny story in the context of now he's my business partner and one of my best friends and critical to the current success that we've had today. But that's how it goes. You learn a lot, some of those early businesses.
0: Yeah, over four years, you got up to 180 something properties?
1: Yeah, 175 units under management, yeah. houses and duplexes spread across three counties. I think at the, right before I sold it, we were up to seven employees. It was a good little business. Frankly, it was a lifestyle business. We did well, but I owned my job. In the summer months when everyone's moving in and moving out, it wouldn't be uncommon for me to work 80 hours in a week. And the business had my name on it. It was called Fry Property Management. And so the business was me. I simply owned my job. It was hard for me to take a vacation. I couldn't really get away from it. I was newly married and my wife and I, that's all we did. Our whole relationship was working together in the business. She ran the office, I ran the field. It was tough. We did well, but at the end of the day, we just owned our job.
0: You said it was lifestyle business, but I guess most people, when they think that, they think, oh, I can just work maybe 10 or 20 hours and you're making good money. You're right. It wasn't even a lifestyle business. (laughs) It was a job. Yeah. We had a job that was very demanding. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. How much were you making? That's kind of interesting that your wife was working for you too. So there's a lot of risk there for both y'all working in the same company. What would be your take home for working all those hours? Like how much were you making on an annual basis?
1: So- would have been over 100, depending on the year. This would have been 04 to 08. It was good for us, especially for a kid with an associate's degree. I was pretty happy with what we built
0: absolutely especially like again you didn't have to go into debt to go to school to do all this instead you actually made money starting your own company and learning a lot more than probably just going to school and getting the business degree you got up to seven people almost 180 properties and then you decided it was time to sell because you were just working too hard or did you see that there might be something with the real estate market crashing soon
1: no did not foresee the real estate market (laughs) actually just had some personal hardship my mom passed away from cancer And then 11 months later, my wife's 16-year-old little sister passed away in a four-wheeling accident. When a business is based on you, when it's just me and my wife and we worked all the time and we carried the business on our shoulders, so to speak, and going through those 11 months of losing two people very close to us, we were kind of emotionally bankrupt. We didn't have the energy and the fight to get up every day and to do all the things necessary to keep the business moving forward. And we even considered closing it down. We were that done at that time. We were heading into a summer. So we were about to really, really ramp up. And we just kind of looked at each other and said, we can't do this right now. Our hearts are a little bit broken. When you have a business and you have employees and you're working hard, it seems like that's the most important thing in the world. It seems like Having an awesome reviewed company with a great reputation that's making money, nothing's more important than that. But then you lose some people that you love very much, and it really changes your priorities. It makes you look up and say, hey, there's things in this world that are more important than making money and running a business. I remember, I think it was the week my mom died, some rents didn't get deposited on a timely basis for one of our clients. And the client was like, hey, I'm sorry that happened to you, but business goes on. (laughs) And obviously, that was a really challenging statement for me. And whatever it takes, they incurred some penalties. I would happy to pay their penalties. But just like the insensitivity of that comment and everything I've done since, I've had the benefit of that life experience where I realized, hey, I want to be successful in life, but I'm not going to be successful at life to the loss of like my family or connection with those that I love. And that that's still going to have to be the highest priority.
0: Was this kind of like a reflection period where, like you were saying, maybe some weeks you were working up to 80 hours and you're just realizing how much you're working and maybe you're putting all this time into the business and maybe you shouldn't be doing that necessarily. Is that kind of the reflection period that you're having because the loved ones have passed away?
1: Yeah, definitely a healthy dose of that, looking back and saying what our priorities, but also just kind of being emotionally bankrupt just losing people that close to you within that short time frame, you really need to take some time and work on yourself and go through the grief process. And when you're running like a steam train, it's very hard to do that. So I was really blessed in the season. A guy that I went to high school with had started a property management company completely separate from me. We actually didn't even know until later that we had both started property management companies. So I approached him and I just said, hey, we're looking to transition. I'm interested in selling. We went through the valuation process and ended up selling in the mid six figures. So that's after four years of work, actually running it out of our house even we were able to walk away in a very successful place.
0: Did you get all that money up front? Because sometimes when you're selling a business, maybe just walk us through, because this is a perfect size business that I think maybe some of the people listening might have a business around this size or maybe five to seven employees. So where it's different from if you have a one or two person company, I don't think you can really necessarily sell it, right? And maybe if it's a company that has a couple hundred people, that's a different process. Right. Just walk us through how you're able to do that and come down the terms as far as getting paid. Maybe if you did it over a time period and the real estate market crash, then that's an issue. But if you're able to get that money up front and you got a loan, then obviously that helps you more.
1: Yeah. So I was ready to walk away just emotionally. My mom passed away in, I think, June. And then the next May, my wife's little sister passed away. So now we're heading into the summer months. So we were able to affect that sale fairly quickly. And we sold in late August of 2008. I didn't go through a book valuation. A book valuation can cost around $10,000 to literally get a business appraiser to come in and review everything and go through the process. It actually takes a long time. We did that in our current business, and we'll get to that later. But it just takes a ton of time, and and I was interested in moving fairly quickly. So I just got some smart people, some people who'd had success in business to come around me, look at my books, look at what we were doing, and help me come up with a price. I sat down with the competitor, and I just said, hey, here's my price. I was expecting some negotiation and probably willing to do some negotiation. And he said, great, I'll take it. I said, okay. So we had an attorney drafted up. He was buying the assets of the business without the name. And so with that, we had to really document everything that was in the business, the inventory, the vehicles, all the tools, and then document all the clients. So he got all my client base. The deal was if any of those clients walked away in the first 60 days, that that would affect the selling price, it actually cause a deduction. So I got $100,000 at closing in a check. And then the rest of the purchase was out over some multiple years, like three or four years. I can't remember exactly. As you mentioned, I mean, literally the next week, the housing crash hit. It really changed the value of rentals, but it actually prevented a lot of people from being able to buy in that season. That did push plenty of people toward the rental market. The business that I sold to continued to grow, continued to add properties under management. I got a healthy check each month for three, four years after.
0: Property management, no matter if it's downtime or uptime, it's not based on the valuation of the actual property like a real estate agent screwed. If there's not any movement happening in a market, they only get paid when something moves versus y'all are monthly income streaming.
1: Yeah. So it's based on the rents, the number of clients that you have with properties, and then the number of rents that are coming in. It's usually a percentage of those rents. And so, again, in that 08 crash, it actually prevented a lot of people from being able to buy a house. The credit tightened up dramatically. Some people who would have been buyers are now renters. I think there was some effect with rent collection, just that was a tough time for a lot of people.
0: So affected slightly, but still over long term, sound like everything would end up working out as far as the same price and the terms he always paid.
1: It did. Yeah. Okay, Yeah. Everything worked out.
0: When you were talking to him about it, did he know the standpoint you were coming from? Let's say if I want to sell to a competitor, I'm just wondering if he would even know your personal situation that you were saying you're emotionally bankrupt. It sounded like you just brought a price to him one day and he's like, Hey, okay. But how do you work through that? Any suggestions on if we wanted to sell a business, maybe Around this size, like what to do?
1: Yeah, certainly keep cards close to the chest. I mean, I didn't come to him and say, hey, man, if you don't buy this, I may just shut this thing down and (laughs) walk away from it. Yeah. Never said that. I was fortunate in my connection with him in that he had lost his father to cancer some years earlier. I did share that it was a tough season, that my wife was in a hard place having just lost her sister and me losing my mom the year before. We did talk through that, but I certainly didn't say, hey, we're done. Anytime I'm going to sell something, my whole business right now is selling things. You do have to be careful that you, again, hold the cards close to the chest and you don't have to tell the buyer everything. You have to be truthful. I was truthful about where my company was, about the success that we'd had, but I didn't share all my motivation.
0: I think anyone understands that from any negotiation point, but I think people understand that. You don't have to say everything that you're dealing with, but after you sold it, you said you're like emotionally bankrupt. Yeah. Were you just planning on just like relaxing for a little bit? I'm trying to walk through what would happen because fortunately enough, I haven't had anyone super close to me pass away. Yeah. So what was your plan after you sold it?
1: Yeah, we definitely, but first of all, I had to work for his business in the transition I can't remember, three, four months perhaps, my wife was able to stop working immediately. She had just lost her sister, so she was in quite a hard place. And me, I went to work for his business. I did his sales work for a season and just helped keep all the clients in the fold, helped keep them happy in the midst of that transition. And that's pretty typical in a business sale is that the previous owner, assuming that they're operational in the business, will actually work for the new business. He later told me if he was doing it over, the guy who bought my business told me if he was doing it over, he would have made that a much longer period. He said three or four months wasn't long enough and that he would have liked me to maybe do a year or 18 months. So if anyone's buying a business out there, you probably want to get the current operator to have a long time frame in the business, putting bows on things and wrapping things up well. Three or four months in that transition. He actually let me be a commissioned salesperson for him after that. He paid me pretty well. So even after my contract was up with the business sale to work for him, if I went out and generated business for him on the side, he paid me. My wife and I, after we wrapped everything up, we traveled a little bit. We hadn't done that before. Just around the country, nothing crazy. And then we bought some rental properties. I bought a... This, again, was the bottom of the market. And anyone who had cash in that season could pick up some pretty incredible deals. I picked up a house in that time frame that was just recently appraised at four times the price that I paid for it. Again, that's in the very bottom of the market. That's pretty dramatic. So several rental properties, I rehabbed them in that time frame, but we did slow down life pretty dramatically in that time frame and focused on the inner stuff for a season so that we could be in a healthy place.
0: I don't want to make it like, oh, it was wife went home, was depressed every day for a year or like that. You were now going to not be quote unquote the boss and you're working for this guy for a couple of years. It just sounds like instead of working those hours, you wanted to work less hours, right? And obviously probably going to get paid less and there's less stress if you're coming from where you're doing now and especially your wife, where it's more relaxation versus grinding all the time for those four years that you built the company.
1: Of course, we had that large healthy check every month. yeah Finances weren't the concern in that season. I wanted to take that money and invest it. I wanted this opportunity with the real estate market, with it being as low as it was, to go out and pick up some houses. We definitely didn't work like we did when we owned the business, but we weren't just sitting around.
0: You're still at least working 40 hours a week for what you're doing right now. Maybe you're just doing the additional stuff. I don't want to sound like is it yeah. a boo-humbug, kind of just go home and check out altogether because of the obviously two difficult situations that you're dealing with, right?
1: Yeah, we didn't check out altogether, but we did focus on some intentional work in ourselves. And one of the things that I would just say to anyone out there is that when you're the CEO of a company, when you have employees under you, you bring your life to work and so do they. So for you to be an effective boss, a good leader, a great communicator, you need to be healthy inside. You need to do the work to be a successful person, not just on the outside, but on the inside. And sounds a little mushy sometimes, but there's truth in that. When you have these big life experiences that affect you in a dramatic way, you have to take the time to work through them and to be in a place where you can step up and lead again.
0: Well, What type of work do you have to do on yourself? Because it sounded like everything was fine to me other than these two obviously bad incidents. Was there something else that you all were dealing with that saying you have to work on yourself before you go back into starting your own business again?
1: No. I mean, it's really the grief of losing two people you love dearly. And grief's a real thing. And a lot of people just want to kind of stuff it in a box and say, hey, we're not going to deal with that. So we read a lot of books. We went to some grief seminars. I mean, we just had literally the one, two punch in less than a year. We sold the business in August. And I would say it was probably the next February before, especially my wife, really started to find happiness again. So, yeah, it's just embracing grief. That's really what the work was embracing grief, saying, Hey, it's okay. And we're going to learn to find a new normal. We're not going to quote get over this. We're going to learn to find a new normal. And that was the process.
0: As you're being bought out and now you're getting the check that's helping with the income that you were making before, what do you decide to do from there?
1: Yeah. So, invested in some real estate, did some rehabs on the side. And I mentioned earlier that I grew up with my dad doing hail damage repair. And he had a friend who, was actually one of the pioneers in the industry. So again, a car gets hail hits the car, it puts dents in the car, and used to what they do was fill it with a putty and then repaint the car, and that actually affects the resale on the vehicle. This highly skilled technical work, you take tools and you massage the dent out from the bottom. It's very difficult to learn, but when you learn it, guys can make really incredible money. In the midst of a large hailstorm, guys can make three to five thousand dollars a day with this process with my dad's friend he knew that i had sold a business and was looking to do something new so we decided that we were going to build a national traveling hail team we were going to open up a training school and then we were actually going to sell franchise territories so someone would develop a city for example oklahoma city gets hit with hail almost every single year so someone would own the oklahoma city market they would have relationships in all the body shops so that when a big hail storm came We, as the national franchisor, would bring a whole hail team into their city, support the franchisee in the body shops doing the work. The body shops make money, the franchisee makes money, and us as the franchisor make money. We got that up and started. To start a technical school in the state of Kansas, there was actually a process. We had to get certified, and being certified allowed us to get government funds for people to go to school. So we did that process. We started training people in how to do it. We put together a group of subcontractors to do our traveling hail team. And then we were working with a franchise company, a company who helps put together franchises. And I came to that business feeling good about myself. Four years in my property management company, I had done well, I had walked away with a lot of money, and I was probably a little overconfident in myself. Wasn't careful at all about choosing our business partner. This guy was a deep expert in the industry. He knew the industry inside and out. And the business model I think was incredibly solid. Got very excited about the business model and invested a lot of money in this new direction. So I didn't take a salary for 18 months. Over time I invested $55,000 in the company over that 18 month period and again, and in no salary. So I'm having to support myself at home out of the proceeds of my previous business sale while at the same time supporting the business and investing in its future. Again, wasn't careful at all in choosing the business partner. I remember we were $5,000 into the business very early in the investing. We had a pretty caustic meeting with the business partner, kind of weird and went sideways. And my dad and I were talking afterwards. My dad said, hey, should we walk away from this? And I said, and there's a quote, I have too much money into this to walk away. So five grand. So instead of paying attention to that warning sign right then, I went on to spend another year and a half and another $50,000 trying to get that company off the ground. We were actually succeeding. It was moving forward. We got our certification to be a technical school. We started training people. We ran a very large hailstorm in Oklahoma City and another one in South Carolina. And again, we were almost done with our FDD getting ready to launch the franchise. And I found out that my business partner had cashed uh, business checks personally. There is nothing that'll sink your ship faster than a partner who's not operating with integrity. When you get a business partner, you get married. You're committing to each other to build this thing together. And as goes your business partner, so goes your business. And the further in that we got into this business, that was the nail in the coffin when the day I found out that he had cashed thousands and thousands of dollars of business checks in his personal account, he had set up a DBA. And cash them.
0: What did you want to do to him after you figured that out? <laughs> you
1: know, by that time, we had had enough butting of heads leading up to that. <laughs> that I was just kind of done.
0: It's not like he's losing money marketing. Right. He was literally doing the worst thing I feel like you could do as a business partner. And you're saying, obviously, there's things leading up to it. Right. Now, I wanted to be quiet for a while while you said this, but it's just like, I would be like, what? Oh man, it
1: was a complete kick in the teeth.
0: That has to hurt the most. Like you were saying, it's like getting married. You could say you put almost 200K into it at least because you're saying at least if you're making 100K yourself from the old job and you worked yeah. 18 months free. So let's just say 150 plus you put the other 50K in actual money in.
1: Yeah. So I invested so much in that time frame. I had had my first boy came along in that time frame, and I know I took a little time off, but I was working hard. If you think about it, I could have taken that 18 months, my wife and I could have like traveled around the world. You know what I'm saying? I mean, we just could have done anything in that time frame with $55,000. Just had a lot of fun, and I had poured my heart and soul into this company and then for him to do this. So, huge huge kick in the teeth. We talked about a lawsuit, but one of the reasons why this guy was in the position that he was cashing checks is cuz his personal finances were in a tough place. And we just said, hey, it's not worth racking up a whole bunch of legal bills on our side just to have a judgment against him that we're not going to collect on. Collect on. Yeah. We just need to learn from this and choose to not be bitter. Instead of looking backward, we're going to choose to look forward. So
0: I'm looking at your LinkedIn too. It seems like this is obviously business number two. Business one was fry management, business two, yeah. this is called Flexident. Yep, And business too, it looks like you only took like four months, quote unquote, off from your other job. So you started this literally right after you got done with your obligation at Fry Management, right?
1: Yeah, I think that's right. So finished up with the guys, bought my business. We traveled a little bit and I think we started working on the business part-time for a handful of months and then it really got rolling. I think we started early in 2009. I think it really got rolling the summer of 2009. We
0: did jump in pretty quick. He must have sold you on this thing to jump totally different industry and you're taking all the money you made from real estate and then at the same time real estate's crashing and you're saying at least you did buy some rentals because you knew so much about it at that point in time. But even if you would have stuck just in real estate and being able to do that versus putting all this money in, that would just ramp up my anger with probably
1: (laughs) No, yeah. So it wasn't it wasn't completely new because I'd grown up with my dad in this industry.
0: Okay. And so, yeah, I remember you said that earlier. Okay. That makes sense.
1: It was something that we were very familiar with, not just helping my dad and taking out headliners and cars, but I had traveled around with him to body shops as a kid. And I kind of knew the ins and outs of what this industry did, even though I didn't have the skill myself, I understood the industry. And so one of the things I'll say is that you learn and you grow the most, not when you're succeeding, but when you're failing. That cements lessons in your mind in a way that nothing else ever does. When my oldest son was a baby, he placed his hands on a fireplace screen, burned his hands and got a blister. And I tell you what, if you ever said the word hot around that kid, again, he would take like five steps back. Winston Churchill says success consists of going from failure to failure without a loss of enthusiasm. I would suggest that almost every entrepreneurial who's been very successful out there has had some pretty tremendous failure in his past because it changes your perspective. You do things differently financially. You do things differently when you look for a business partner. Just everything, you approach it from a different perspective when you've touched that fireplace screen and burned your hand on it real bad. Here I am removed from that season by nine years or so. And I can look back and be really grateful for that time, really grateful for the lessons that I learned coming out of it. At the time, it was very hard. And if I thought about the money I would put into it and lost, and I thought about my foregone salary, I could go a little crazy. I was still in a great place financially because of my first business sale. And so I just had to say, again, I'm not going to look backward. I'm going to look forward. I'm a success, even though this situation wasn't. What can I learn from it? What can I do next?
0: You were pissed off at the time, though. You had to be. Oh, yeah. Tell me about the second you found out, like, how did you exactly know he was doing this?
1: He had met someone to collect some checks and he and I had talked about that. So that was the plan. And I kept asking him about, hey, I need to get those checks and put them in the bank. I handled all the banking relationship. I was the signer on all the checks and everything. He had stiff armed me a couple times. Oh, I'm still supposed to meet with him, blah, 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 blah. Maybe a couple of weeks went by. And I was just like, hey, this guy hasn't paid. I'm going to go call him. And he's like, oh, actually, he did pay. He paid me directly. And I went and put it in the bank. I had to do it because of my personal finances. I didn't have a choice, is what he told me.
0: (laughs) That made it easy right when you figure that out. And he acted like probably that wasn't a big deal. I'm just saying, if we have a partner so we can look out for this, is there any way to keep this from happening or any suggestions on it? I mean, really, if you pick a bad partner, they're going to find out a way to kind of screw you somehow anyways, it seems like. But any other suggestions on how someone listening could handle this? or keep from that happening or even trying to find a good co-founder or a partner?
1: Yeah, one of the things I would say is don't have a 50-50 partnership. That's a big thing. If you have an idea, if you have a passion, if you have something that you're starting, don't have a 50-50 partnership. Sometimes you'll need to bring in partners from a financial standpoint or a skill sets standpoint. But if it's your thing, own that thing. You're the leader. You sign the checks at the end of the day. Build some safeguard, trust people, but then build safeguards in as well. There were warning signs. We never should have been in partnership with this guy. You know, maybe we should have hired him. He had deep, deep knowledge and deep connections in the industry. If we had hired him or had him consult in the business, I think that could have been successful. But to have him as a partner was a bad mistake, and I should have seen that early on.
0: I'm glad you gave that tip because you're coming from an aspect where you owned 100% of your first business. Yes. private management? Yeah. And then now you literally 50-50, you and your dad with the guy. What was the partnership split?
1: You know, honestly, I can't quite remember.
0: Right. But regardless, you didn't own the majority.
1: I think that's correct. Yeah. Because my dad was an owner and this guy was an owner. So yeah, I certainly didn't own the majority. Honestly, I just can't remember. It's been so long. And some of these things, it's like, If I dwell on it, it's going to drive me crazy.
0: Well, then don't dwell on it. We got the concept of it. When you're 100% in control of your other company versus...
1: You make the decisions, you call the financial shots. When you win or lose, because the guy in the mirror, not because someone else set off a trapdoor underneath you, not because someone else went out and made a really poor decision. Partnerships are hard. So I'll give you a little preemptive glance. The current business, I have a partner. We're going to talk about that. It's my brother, the same brother that I fired before is now my partner in this business and that's successful in a different way. But in general, don't have a partner. Have a minority owner, have a highly paid consultant, don't have a 50-50 partner.
0: I'm glad you're able to catch up and see those old group calls and those are definitely helping.
1: Yeah, and probably the most helpful one has been with a gal that did PR.
0: Megan Bennett.
1: Yes, yes. Like, I listened to that whole thing with all the people's questions and her ideas, and I like how, you know, you got her to tell more stories than just the regular interview.
0: Yeah, well, I appreciate you being a patron.
1: Uh, no worries, man. I, I came across a podcast a few weeks ago, and I definitely uh, enjoy them. So uh, I wanted to at least show my commitment, and at the amount that you uh, it costs, I, I wanted to go for the highest tier, so...
0: Yeah, well, I appreciate that. So were you just Googling? Like a
1: took up another podcast and yours popped up. And I was like, well, let me check this out. And then, you know, I listened to one and I love how in-depth and detail. The first one I listened to was the uh, Mining Key guy.
0: Oh, that was a good one. That was a good one to start off with. Yeah. yeah.
1: And, and I'm in the franchising, right? Okay, so, perfect. well, I'm in a franchise. I definitely, uh, it definitely was a good one to start off. And um, I like the questions that you ask. You know, you hold them to numbers and... So I think I've listened to maybe sixty in the
0: last three weeks. Oh wow! Yeah, so. you've been binging. As far as like episodes, what's been one of your favorite? The Mineki guy. The Meineke, yeah, <laughs> you really did start <laughs> yeah. off with. I thought so yeah. too. I've been telling uh, everyone how great that one was.
1: And 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 he's one of the main reasons I joined the Patreon. too. I was like, man, I gotta hear the end of his story. It took, <laughs> it took me a couple of weeks, but uh, yeah, I like, yeah, I gotta hear the end of his story.
0: So if you want to hear that episode with Charles Bonfiglio, go check out episode one sixty-five seems like it makes sense if something's your idea and you need the funds for it, having that person be the minority partner versus you're saying, if you have two guys who are 50-50, then you could blame the other person all the time if or something not going right versus taking ownership of what you're saying. You decided to get out of this and into 2010, you finally decided you want to stop funding this guy's personal finances. Yes. So what do you do from there? From Flexident, we're talking about we're going to be going into business three, the brown button estate yeah. sale.
1: I'm I'm not a person who just sits around staring at the wall. So I was looking for something new to do. Having broached the world of franchises in that second business, I had thought about buying a franchise. I looked around at some different things. And one weekend, my wife and I went to an estate sale just for fun. We were just poking around. So for those who don't know, an estate sale is a sale of personal property inside a residential home. It's kind of like a garage sale on steroids because you walk into a house and literally everything in the house is for sale. Every closet, stuff in the kitchen, maybe even the car in the garage is for sale. So my wife and I went to one of these just for fun. We're just poking around and it was the most unprofessional, poorly run situation I'd ever seen. It was kind of amazing. It was dirty in the house. The employees were yelling at each other across the house like, hey, Bob, I need something. It was unbelievable. We happened to show up near closing time, didn't even know it. And the gal at the front checkout said, hey, if you ain't in line in five minutes, I'm going to charge you double. I just looked around flabbergasted that that was the level of customer service that they had.
0: Well, that's not a bad business model for her, right? You oh,
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Kidding>. <laughs> you know, for me as a customer, I just wanted to leave. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, Icky just hearing it. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I just couldn't believe that that's how a business is run. I found out these people have been in business for 20 years, I was like, well, this is crazy. This can't be normal. So my wife and I went to estate sales all around town and we found out that that's more normal than not, that the estate sale industry is junky garage sales in a house more often than not. There's some good players, but as a general rule, it's a poorly run industry. And if you couple that with the senior demographics, it's crazy. I mean, the opportunity that's coming in this industry, the number of Americans who are turning 65 or older is projected to more than double by 2060. So the number of retirees now to 2060 will double. There are 10,000 baby boomers a day retiring. It's just crazy. This tidal wave of need that's coming and the way the industry is set up to serve them.
0: I never knew that estate sale. I thought it was always with someone dying. So when you're talking about the garage sale versus estate sales difference. You're just saying estate sales are in-house. And honestly, if you think about it, anyone, I could see a house automatically kind of dirtier because at least a garage sale, they have to put an effort to bring it outside, put it on a right. table, maybe organize it some versus I could see what you're saying with the estate sale route. Does estate planning have anything to do with the actual death? there? The estate sales, sorry, or no, is that usually when people die, they just have it because they have everything inside and they make it easier because you just brought up the whole demographic thing. Yeah. The way I always thought of it. So can you tell us the differences?
1: Yeah. So one thing to know is that you don't have to be dead to do an estate sale.
0: Right. I learned that in this podcast interview, at least.
1: That is certainly a group of clients that we serve or families who've recently lost a loved one. And I think coming out of my personal experience, I understand those families in a different way. And I can express care for them in a different way because I've personally gone through this process. What we found is that the majority of clients that we serve are actually baby boomers who are choosing to downsize they have the four or the five bedroom home, the kids are grown and gone, and they no longer just need the big space and all the stuff. And they wanna go to something dramatically smaller. You know, in Kansas, we can have some pretty severe winter weather, we had about 10 inches of snow this last weekend. So what we find is a lot of high net worth individuals as they reach those retirement ages, they're moving to Arizona, they're moving to Florida. Maybe they already have a furnished house that they've been using as a vacation home in those states. And so they just say, hey, sell everything, let it all go. I would say getting to that point was a process. We started the business and we were pretty naive. What we said is, hey, no one's doing this very professionally that we can see. We're gonna do this, we're gonna take this to the max of professionalism. Well, the problem is the average estate sale is $11,000. If you bring the height of professionalism to an $11,000 sale, you can't make any money. Because that's the gross sales, and then the client gets a portion of that, the estate sale company gets a portion. And if you put tons and tons of money into advertising, into really good signage and all these different things and the labor costs, there's no money left at the end of the day, profit.
0: I would think, yeah, you'd have to put a considerable amount of time into getting this already. Before you just start talking about the year one and what you're able to accomplish, did you decide right after that first estate sale, you said you started going to ones right afterwards. Did your business idea come up like literally as you were leaving that very first one? You're like, hey, maybe I've been looking for business ideas. This is an opportunity. Yes. Okay.
1: I walked out of there saying, this is crazy. If this is normal, we can do this better.
0: Yeah. And your wife agreed? She did. Yeah. Then the, the very next week or whatever, you just started going a lot of them to try to still see if that made sense.
1: Yeah, I went to sales around town. And again, there are certainly better players, but the industry average is broken. It's poorly run. It's non-professional.
0: So what did you start doing to get this thing started? Did you hire a brother right away? Just tell us about how much money you had to put in the business to get this going. Because obviously you just come off two years of at least your personal work income. You weren't making money, but at least you had still had money coming in from your first business. What did you do to get this thing started?
1: So we went to estate sales around town, realized that this was normal. We sat down and said, how can we do this completely differently? So one of the aspects of an estate sale is you typically will do a well run estate sale anyways, is you'll stage the home meticulously, turn it into a store inside the house, and then you have to literally price everything in the house. So having the business background I was in, I knew how to bring best business practices to this endeavor, but not so much about pricing. My younger brother, James, the one I fired, had been on eBay since he was 12, had a deep knowledge of stuff and of pricing. And so really an obvious choice for me, I went to my mentor, the same guy who helped me get started with my first business, and I said, hey, I have this crazy idea. And he said, great, I also have a crazy idea that I want to tell you about. You go first. I said, estate sales. He said, no way. My crazy idea is estate sales. I don't know how he got to that. I can't remember, but essentially we sat down at the same meeting with the same idea to launch a business. The business started with four people, myself, my brother, my mentor, and then one other guy who was involved early on. He had a social media background. We all brought a thousand dollars to the table and said, Okay, for four grand, we're gonna get this business started. Which there's not many industries that you could start a business for only four thousand dollars, but that's what we did. James put together a website. And we just jumped in. We found someone who had spent 20 years in the industry. And she gave us a whole afternoon and just talked about the business, the ins and outs. I think I filled a complete legal pad with notes in meeting with this lady. Once again, came into an industry I knew nothing about but said, we're going to find the resources. We're going to learn how we can get this thing up and running.
0: Well, it's kind of funny that you didn't know anything about real estate, that ended up doing well. You didn't know anything about this estate sales or whatever. It seems like it's obviously doing well today because we talked about it. Yeah. But the thing that you thought you knew, you got screwed on, right?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's, I've never looked at it that way, but I think, yeah, there's a lot of truth in that.
0: Not that you weren't open-minded with the other company, but when you're going into something you don't know shit about, you will have to be as open-minded as hell, like when you're talking to this woman or whatever.
1: You have to dive deep. You have to get into it and learn it in depth. And you can't just make assumptions.
0: Yeah, zero assumptions because you don't know even know what to assume, right? Exactly. <laughs> so, but this woman, was she actually a competitor or she was just getting out of the business and was willing to tell you all this stuff?
1: Yeah. She had kind of got out of the business. She had moved from doing estate sales to being a personal property appraiser. So if someone has a and they needed appraised for tax purposes, she steps in. And so she just gave us her time. She actually referred us our very first sale. And the first sale was the glorified garage sale. It was someone's garage and back basement. It brought in $4,500. And I think we probably spent a month, four people spent most of a month working on it. So obviously the economics don't work on that first
0: one. Yeah. So what's the percentage you're getting? Cause you're saying the sales were that they have yeah, to... 35%, 35%. Okay. 35%. Cause yeah, the majority is going, I assume back to the owner, right? It's their actual stuff that they're selling. Right? Yeah.
1: So we walked away from that first sale with a $1,200. Yeah. Nice. For a month's worth of work for four people. But you got to start somewhere.
0: I agree. Yeah, that's the thing. That's why I thank you for bringing up the first sale because it always takes time. We can't just snap our fingers and have this happen overnight. So it might seem minute and suck at the beginning, but you got to start somewhere.
1: You know, one of the things in our culture now is starting a business or having an invention. It's kind of sexy from Shark Tank to just like startup culture and podcast. It's a cool thing to have your own business. And I'm all about it. I've had three, I love it. An entrepreneur is who I am, but I just don't want to gloss over like the pain of starting something. Like there is a season, it's kind of like a farmer who has a new field and he has to get the rocks out of that field and he has to break up the soil and he has to plow that field and pull all the weeds. And the first day he does that, He gets nothing and the second day he does that he gets nothing it's maybe months later before the harvest is there and it's just like that when you start a business the cost is up front is what i'm trying to say it's interesting i recently read the book shoe dogs by phil knight and this is the guy who started nike and nike's crazy i mean it has like 30 billion dollars in sales now it's nuts it's all over the world but here's the thing he had struggles for 18 years of starting the business He got kicked out of multiple banks. I mean, like, I think four different times in the first 18 years, they're thinking about going out of business. They did $14 million in revenue one year and thought they were going out of business. Don't underestimate there is a season of cost, a season of pain when you start a business, but the harvest, the win, the freedom comes on the other side of paying that price.
0: We haven't talked about this before for someone in to think about, because we're obviously just hitting highlights over several years, right, of your story right now. Hitting some highlights and some lowlights, whatever. But what you're not seeing, obviously, is the amount of hours that you have to put in to get to where you got. It's just like if you're in the gym, you see the guy who's pretty jacked. And maybe you just started hitting the gym. Well, there's a reason he's jacked. You didn't see how many times, yeah, how many hours and years he's put in to get in his muscles where they are. It's like, oh, well, maybe if I work out for two or three weeks and then I'm not looking like that, you quit. Well, Correct. again, there's a reason he's at where he's at versus where you're at right now. Same principles apply in the gym as you do in business to me.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. Those first couple of years were kind of like lifting weights and not seeing any results. It was hard. We were trying to do something completely different. We were trying to bring this high level of professionalism. We weren't running a profit and loss statement on every sale. And it wasn't until later that we realized that some of these sales we were putting in more labor in than the price we got out. That seems obvious in hindsight, but you're just in the trenches making stuff happen. And sometimes you don't stick your head up and realize where you are. We were pretty naive thinking we could do something completely different. And we were running sales just like everyone else. It was a couple years into the business, year three or maybe close to year four, when somewhat by happenstance, we got a sales call in a $2.5 million house. So $2.5 million on the coast may not be much of a house, but in Kansas City, that's pretty significant. It's probably about 12,000 square foot house, five car garage. I mean, beautiful, beautiful house in a very exclusive neighborhood. It was an $80,000 estate sale that we ran that next week and sort of a light bulb went on, is there is a group of people that needs our service, and they need this uber professionalism, this social media focus, this ability to do things differently, and they're willing to pay for it. And when you're making 40% of 80,000, That's very different than making 35 or 40% of $11,000 for two weeks' worth of work.
0: Were you just running net neutral for the first couple of years of the business?
1: Yeah. So I actually went backwards financially for the first three years of this business. I had less every month at the end of the month than when I started.
0: That hurts because the first four years, you made significant money, right? It seemed like and then the next seven years, basically, you're saying two plus the three, maybe five, Yeah. Let's say five, six years, you're like going backwards financially. And once you sold that first company, you probably didn't envision that you'd be at this point, right?
1: I did not. I certainly didn't. And again, there's a cost to starting something and making it successful and plan for that be willing to put in that cost. In those first three years, we almost closed twice. We certainly talked about it. We said, hey, if we don't turn a corner with this, we're going to have to close down and we had an event where we did something a little bit different we actually worked for a business we liquidated a couple of warehouses it was a huge project we spent over a month on it it generated maybe 50,000 but by the time we had done all the moving costs we had rented a giant space for the sale we put the labor in we actually lost 20 grand on the project
0: yeah god that hurts oh, oh that it's hurts tough <laughs> Yeah. Yeah.
1: So blessing in disguise, because we went to one. So I told you, we started with four partners. It kind of looked like we were going to shut down at that time. And we went to one of the partners and I was able to buy out his share for five grand. What that share is worth today is multiple. I mean, just tremendous amount. What a blessing in disguise to go through that hardship. It was tenuous. We might've closed. And I said, Hey man, I'll buy out your share. He walked away from the business. So it was just myself, my brother, and my mentor at that time. Again, pretty soon after we land this giant sale in an exclusive neighborhood and the light bulb came on and we said, this business can be successful if we direct all of our attention to high net worth individuals who are choosing to downsize. They need something different than what's done out there. Most high net worth individuals don't even consider an estate sale when they're going to move, because an estate sale is kind of a junkie garage sale in a house run by Bubba and his truck.
0: Bubba and his boys.
1: Yeah, exactly. And so that was a turning point in our business. That sale probably kept us in business.
0: That was literally right after the sale that almost put you out of business, right? And I don't blame the partner wanting to get out, because sometimes like after that couple of years, you're just like, dude, I cannot keep doing this, right?
1: Exactly. Yeah. And I think he went on to be the social media director for Sonic, The drive-in?
0: Right, drive-in restaurant.
1: Yeah, he's very successful. So he did some social media stuff for us early on. It made sense. He wasn't operational most days with where the business stood. It made sense for him to go in a different direction. Very thankful for that today. Painful at the time, but in hindsight, thankful. So switched our whole business model. We focused on the high end. And we got really good at serving high net worth individuals and doing things completely differently than are done in our industry. One of the things that we learned in that time, we read a book called Essentialism, and it talks about what are the essential things that make all the difference, also called the 80-20 rule. And we 80-20ed our entire company. We found out that we make 80% of our profits on 7% of what we sell in someone's house. So much of what we sell, the volume of what we deal with, accounts for a very small percentage of our profits. We had to radically shift how we operated the company that just made us much better over time.
0: What were the things that were making you money versus the things that weren't? I would never have thought of that 80-20 rule in a state sale. I mean, I thought you already figured that out just by finding the market that would yeah. help you that much. But now you're saying there's actual stuff inside. I'm, I'm just curious.
1: Yes, the market itself is 80-20. I mean, the fact that we're focusing on the upper end of the marketplace, but then even in a house, I mean, everyone has a bunch of junk in their house, whether that's stuff in their garage or their attic or just low value stuff in their kitchen. And it's stuff that to run a success successful high-end estate sale, you have to organize and it has to be displayed and it has to be individually priced, but it's cheap stuff. 67% of the volume of what we sell, sells for under a buck 50. And so you just have to move really, really quickly with that stuff. If you spend time and put everything in perfect neat rows, then you're going to lose money on it. Whereas the things that make a lot of money is that Henry Don dining room set with inlaid mahogany that they bought for 12 grand. And you price it in 15 minutes and it, it sells at an estate sale used price for $4,000.
0: So you're saying the high-end stuff, again, even when in the house, it's kind of like, okay, you find your clientele, now you're working with the high-end clientele. But when you get inside, if they had just a lot of regular silverware, all that stuff, you don't need to spend any time on. You just need to find the really super nice stuff. And that's the one that makes you 80% of your money is these high-end, like maybe pianos and and stuff like that. Exactly.
1: Yeah. That's kind of the application for my specific business. Every business has 80-20. Read the book, 80-20 Sales and Marketing. Read the book, 80-20 Manager. Throughout anyone's businesses, there are certain levers that when you pull, they make all the difference. A little bit of action makes tremendous results. And when you apply that framework to your business, your business will get more profitable, it'll run more efficiently, and the people inside are gonna be happier.
0: Tell us in your last few minutes here what you've grown today and maybe if there's anything else we could learn what's happened over those last couple of years. What exact year did that switch happen?
1: Yeah, somewhere year three to four, late year three, beginning year four, somewhere in there.
0: Yeah. Okay, so you've run it for almost eight years. So the last five years or so, if you want to tell us what happened from there.
1: Yeah. So we started to build our name for ourselves as a company. I mentioned again placing on the Inc. five thousand the last two years with our growth. We won a number of awards in Kansas City, the fastest 50 companies in Kansas City, and we won an award for our culture. And that's probably the thing I want to make sure and cover before I go is one of the things I learned out of those couple businesses that I owned before, and even people that I worked for prior to going into business for myself in high school and in college is the environment of a business matters tremendously. I was looking up some stats recently, and Inc. Magazine said of 100 million Americans who hold full-time jobs, 70% are not inspired by their work or by their managers. In essence, 70% of those who have a full-time job hate their job, which is kind of staggering. And that's why we have, oh God, it's Monday, thank God it's Friday, because of that mentality. In my previous business in Fry Property Management, you know, I wasn't a bad boss, but I wasn't a good boss either. I didn't care about my people. I didn't intentionally instill things in them and help them grow. I was just trying to get stuff done every day. And then the second, Flexident, it was rough. I mean, that guy was, there's a lot of controlling going on and it just wasn't a good environment for me. So I said, with this third business, I have a chance to do something different. I have to work here every day, so I might as well make it a dang good place to work. We've been incredibly intentional about that. We have six core values that are very specific to our company. And that when it's in-depth in our hiring process, it's a part of how we review our staff. It's potential someone could get fired over these things. To work in this company, you have to follow these core values. And I'll run through them real quick. Six core values. People matter always. Blow people away experience. Good soil. The quote, I am responsible. 80-20 rule and visual excellence. So we've made this a place where people get to come and be themselves and it's safe and they get to bring their best self to work every single day. And honestly, I believe that that's the number one factor for our success in this business in the way that customers get to experience our company and the way our clients get to experience our company. An easy way to say it is that we're Chick-fil-A, not McDonald's. And people feel that in the atmosphere when they come into your business and you care about serving them.
0: Yeah, I'm going to say that makes sense because if you want to compare Chick-fil-A, their fast food to, let's say, Burger King, McDonald's, Wendy's. If anyone doesn't know in the U.S., it's definitely a different feel. And you're kind of in an industry that's kind of icky. You get that sense based on what you want with the estate sales. So I could see what your analogy is there.
1: Yeah, so we just we really serve people. All my staff, we see a lot of regulars who attend sale after sale. Our staff is instructed to get to know and memorize as many regulars as possible. We'll use first names when they walk in the door. Our staff loads furniture out into their vehicles. Again, it's just very customer focused, and in that led to a lot of our success. We have the largest market share of luxury estate sales in Kansas City. This last year, out of cash flow, we were able to launch a sister company that's an auction house. The top one to three percent of what we find in a estate sale goes to the auction house because we make more money for the client. So we sold a pair of Asian antique chairs for fifty thousand dollars to a collector in California. We sold a four-carat diamond ring to a dealer in New York City. We sold an Italian oil painting to a buyer in Israel. Out of the success of the first company, we were able to open the second company. The plan is 20 additional estate sale markets over the next five years.
0: And just coming full circle, so five years ago, we had three of y'all. It seemed like you're almost going to shut down. And again, what size are you at today as far as employee count and revenue?
1: Yeah, so we'll fluctuate in our busy season. We're in the mid-20s, gets up to the high-20s, and that's our Kansas City market. When we open St. Louis later this year, we'll start off with eight people there, and that'll grow over time and then additional markets as well.
0: Well, we appreciate you coming on, sharing your story. It seems like you already kind of left us off with those last points that we can consider when growing our business. Is there any last words of wisdom when you want to leave with anybody here?
1: Care about people. At the end of the day, your people is what makes your business work. Your customers who show up, your clients who hire you, um, you're in business because of people. So be in business for people. When you care about people, your business will take care of itself.
0: Well, thank you for coming on, Michael. And if someone wanted to reach out and say thank you for doing the podcast, where should they reach you at?
1: Oh, you can always connect with us, see what we're doing on Instagram at brown underscore button, or you're welcome to connect with me personally on LinkedIn.
0: And I guess just look up your name, Michael Fry.
1: Michael H. Fry. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode. Let's get started with our Patreon shoutouts. You can find more about each member's business by checking our episode notes below as well. So, our first newest Patreon member, Akash of Loggyleap, he's in Mesa, Arizona. If you need an app developed for you, he's your man. Go visit loggyleap.com. That's L O G I L E A P.com. Tuna Osman in Ontario, Canada, who's in the process of starting his own company. Thank you for becoming a member. Walker Peak of Residential Acoustics in Tampa, Florida. Thank you, brother. If you need some soundproof curtains, go check them out at residential-acoustics.com, where you can hear more about his story by tuning into episode six. Our next member is Mr. Better. God knows where he's located. Seems like he wants to stay anonymous, but still appreciate the donation. Doug Smith, who's also located somewhere in Florida. Thank you for also becoming a new Patreon member. And our last, newest Patreon member is Ryan Moore out of Portland, Oregon, who's going to be featured in an upcoming episode. Thank you to you all. And if you're listening up to this point, have you gotten any value from listening to the podcast? If so, we'd certainly appreciate your support via Patreon. With a small $1 pledge per episode, you can help keep us on the air. If you're willing to help us, then please visit millionaire-interviews.com forward slash Patreon or check your episode notes below. Again, that's millionaire-interviews.com forward slash Patreon.